Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. This week on Critical Window, we're taking a closer look at what research says about student agency and activism and what it means for our middle and high school students learning. I've got to say, Robin, I'm so excited for this topic. Me too. I'm, I mean, I've been seeing topics like this all over the news, and I'm really excited about the guests that we have. Ben Kirshner is a professor of the Learning Sciences and Human Development at the University of Colorado Boulder and the faculty director of CU Engage Community-Based Learning and Research. He's the author of many papers and a few books, including Youth Activism in an Era of Education Equality. His work centers on how young people, especially those from marginalized communities, learn to exercise collective political agency and how they interpret their socio-political context. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, I'm really excited to be here. As we were preparing for the show, we realized that a lot of terms thrown out in this space might confuse people. Researchers from student activism use a variety of them. If you could just unpack these terms for us uh, and clarify if they're the same thing or different, that'd be very helpful. That's a good place to start. Rather than to define each of those terms, uh, which I'm afraid might, might be a little dry and, and, and interesting, I'm just gonna introduce a few key questions that I try to ask when I'm learning for the first time about a particular activity, um, again, or, or initiative. So a, a, key, a key distinction um, that I think matters is to try to understand who is the sponsor or the host for this effort or, or program. Um, so often, for example, we'll see that student voice gets associated more with uh, school-sponsored activities mm -hmm. that try to promote student input into decision-making um, at the school level, mm -hmm. um, whereas oftentimes youth organizing is associated outside of school with community organizations. But I think um, sometimes those terms can get used differently. But there's another um, question I will often ask, which is who's participating or leading and or leading the, um, the effort? Mm -hmm. And so I often find that college student versus high school student programs, they're, they're substantively very different, and so I think that's a, an important distinction. Um, are the, is the program really centered on and or led by experiences of youth of color or perhaps GLBTQ youth? Um, or does it aspire to a more, um, in, you know, colorblind or uh, orientation, or maybe it's even restricted to certain population of students like student athletes or straight A students? Mm -hmm. So those are the questions is like kind of who participates and whose experiences are really defining the agenda. That's the second distinction, and I just have one last <laughs> distinction that I want to share with the listeners. Um, towards what ends is this effort going? What's what's the purpose? What's the goal? And there's a distinction often made uh, between opportunities for young people to be civically engaged that are primarily um, focused on kind of maintaining our institutions. Mm -hmm. And so it means kind of participating in existing systems and learning how to participate in those systems. Very important. Um, or is it oriented towards issues of equity or justice and, and encouraging young people to think about how they might change institutions or systems to really address uh, kind of or realize kind of broader goals of, of, the, of the United States or of issues of, of fairness and inclusion and social justice? As I think about what's been happening um, uh, with students related in response to things like um, the DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, for mm -hmm. listeners who aren't 
familiar with that acronym, and also the response by students um, to the tragedy in Parkland recently. Could you kind of talk us through using those key questions um, as a frame, how we can wrap those um, examples into the context? You know, the effort to both create DACA and then fight to maintain DACA came out of the immigrant rights movement. Mm -hmm. And that movement has been, was was intergenerational in many ways. So it, it included, um, you know, parents and grandparents and, and adults and, and young people. And there's some really terrific research showing the ways in which, you know, youth, uh, efforts and youth youth leaders kind of worked in an interdependent and, and kind of collaborative way with some of the existing um, policy organizations. The undocumented and unafraid movement, uh, I think, really tried to lift up a broad range of experiences within uh, undocumented students and um, also really did more direct action that was, okay. you know, occupying office, you know, offices of, of Senator McCain, for example, which I would very much characterize as a form of activism um, that was really centered on the experience of young people, many of whom are from Mexico and Central America, but also many from the continent of Africa, from Europe, from East Asia, who, who again, were fighting to be uh, come recognized as part of this country because they grew up here. You know, on one hand, the, the DACA effort is working with existing government channels to recognize and legalize the status of young people who grew up in this country, even if their parents um, came here in an undocumented way. Um, so in that sense, you know, they're, they're working with our, in our existing structures, but then they're also challenging those structures too and how we think about, um, you know, borders and, and the arbitrariness of borders to some extent. So um, in the case of Parkland, I think those students felt like, you know, the status quo response uh, was not, you know, satisfying to them around um, the issue of gun violence. And they did not necessarily, I think, feel that you know, they're, they're the kind of typical channels that they might have to address those ideas could be met just by talking to, say, their teachers or raising the issue with their principals. So uh, I would very much think of this as a form of activism, particularly because it involved galvanizing statewide and, and national movement. Uh, according to my sources, uh, that particular school district and school had a really lively and thriving um, set of opportunities for students to get skilled at civic participation. So there was a strong debate uh, club infrastructure and debate classes. There was a strong theater program. Okay. Um, so these students, I believe there was a strong gay-straight alliance in that um, district. Okay. So these are all experiences that kind of young people were ready, or, or if not ready, were at least had, had a lot of practice in the skills of, of working with others, of getting, getting their ideas out there and communicating in a concise way. I think most of us who follow it closely are seeing, um, you know, an effort by the Parkland students and, uh, but with some cajoling and, and with some um, encouragement from young people of color, both in Parkland and in other places like Chicago, mm -hmm. to really draw attention to the ways in which, um, you know, gun violence and police violence have been an issue facing young people growing up in uh, high poverty communities in particular, and especially black youth and Latino youth long before this Parkland case. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm seeing is some efforts to have some alliances being built um, that are really ensuring that um, 
that that some of these longstanding issues are getting addressed as well, and that uh, youth of color who've been trying to raise awareness about this issue are also uh, get be, becoming kind of center stage. And so I think what we're seeing is efforts to build coalitions mm -hmm. that I think is really exciting. I think the point you bring up there is really important, mm -hmm. talking about uh, the types of systems that were already in place yes. in Parkland uh, that helped lift the vo make this a an easier transition maybe for these students mm -hmm. to become activists at a national mm -hmm. stage because of the type of mm -hmm. environment and support they already had in their local school district and, and in their community. In your book, you talk about uh, looking for your first job in San Francisco in, in 1993. You eventually um, uh, got involved in a program called Youth in Action and the local YMCA in the Mission District, which is a predominantly Latino district. Uh, and you talk about different types of engagement and empowerment uh, that the organizations offered for teenagers. Could you explain a little bit more about what you were seeing there? And so, <clears throat> yeah, I was just out of college in my 20s and looking for a job that, that would pay me to work with youth. Um, and I wasn't ready to try to be a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of uh, an ecosystem of a few different kinds of community-based or nonprofit organizations um, in the Bay Area at the time that did work with youth back in the early 1990s, there was a strong federal push for programs that would um, kind of be preventative in that way around particular behaviors. Mm -hmm. But it was really about, you know, either preventing or intervening in a behavior rather than promoting a broader sense of development. Now, over the last 20 years, I think that approach, although still existing, has kind of been displaced by the positive youth development movement, which I think has generally been a very good thing. Um, and positive youth development is an orientation that you, you know, you're probably familiar with, but generally tries to take a strength or asset-based approach to working with young people and also tries to create opportunities for youth that are holistic and that really promote uh, development, broadly speaking, relationships, civic engagement, leadership, um, self-understanding. Um, because as uh, Karen Pittman fam famously said, problem-free is not fully prepared. So rather than just focus on eradicating problems, you know, let's really talk about preparation, thriving, human development. That model was the kind of program I was working in at the time, uh, which was the San Francisco Conservation Corps Youth in Action Program. And young people were also learning work skills. So we were out there in different parts of San Francisco doing projects in teams of 12 um, to beautify parks, to create video documentaries about environmental issues. I think it's a, it was a good model of, of kind of, you know, leadership focused youth development. Um, but there's a third example, which uh, I wrote about in the book mm -hmm. that really kind of challenged some of my, uh, my assumptions in, in positive ways, which was that around the corner from our office and literally around the corner uh, on 22nd Street was a small office um, that a group called Youth Making a Change worked out of that was part of a broader organization called Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth. And in that organization, um, young people and adults were really working in partnership um, to actually have youth be part of devising policy solutions mm -hmm. affecting kind of systems in the city. So rather than kind of clean a park here, clean a park there, there was a campaign that youth were actively um, leading for to, to really create more city budget allocations to support youth development opportunities for all youth across the city. So again, that's kind of a systems approach. And this was really centered particularly on youth of color in some of the neighborhoods in South San Francisco and Southeast San Francisco. That uh, is sometimes described as youth organizing, or it can also be described as social justice youth development. And um, that's, that's what I was seeing. And that's 
one among several things that really motivated me then to eventually go back and, and do research about different kinds of developmental settings for young people. I, I've been thinking about what this actually means uh, to be a superintendent or principal or a teacher. Uh, are you just supposed to disregard the formal learning environment, just let students go leave and support causes that are important to them? If we're just letting them walk out and do protests, are, are we wasting opportunities for them to learn about important subjects like mathematics or literature or biology? We, we've been talking about a kind of a broad landscape of types of student voice, student activism and organizing, um, one of which is walkouts and protests, mm -hmm. but it's not reduced to that. If one is a superintendent or working in a school district or leading a school, I think there's several different ways to support youth civic development and political participation. And some of them are more proactive, you know, than reactive. I really want to encourage our superintendents and districts and, and, and school leaders to really rethink what student council means. Um, I think, you know, different schools and different districts have different histories of how they think about student government and student council. I, I do know that there's some good research showing that in schools with fewer resources, um, schools in low-income communities tended not to have bylaws for their student council, unlike some of their more affluent peers. But more importantly, often the issues they worked on tended to be more um, social, like planning a prom or making sure they're responsible for the yearbook or doing other kinds of fundraising. Those are all really important leadership kinds of experiences. But I think one way to support student learning and voice is to think about how a student council, student advisory group could actually have some input into substantive issues that the school is facing. Um, frankly, I think that's going to be helpful to a, a principal and a superintendent uh, because it'll help them develop practices and policies that are really responsive to young people's lived experiences. A second um, example is to think about how civic learning and voice and agency can be integrated into the academic curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's actually, in my view, not that hard. It's only hard insofar as we've created some systems that um, kind of make it hard, but but actually uh, from a perspective of a learning scientist like myself, mm -hmm. it's actually really consistent with what we know to be high quality, deeper learning. So to give you an example, um, a literacy class it doesn't have to be a civics class. It's a literacy class. And, you know, some of the goals for middle school students or high school students involve improving their ability to read texts, particularly now with some of the common core shifts, uh, nonfiction texts, really understanding differences between evidence and opinion, learning how to write persuasively um, is a form of literacy, certainly speaking persuasively. It's an important form of uh, literacy and expressing your ideas. So those kinds of literacy skills um, and, and knowledge can really be learned through when young people are doing their own research about issues that they care about and then developing policy proposals based on what they learn. So that's a second example, and I would call that, um, you could call that action civics or you could call that participatory action research. Okay, let's get to your third example, protests and walkouts. What? So, so one way you posed it is kind of like um, you could imagine a, you know, someone who works in schools or a superintendent feeling like, listen, our mission is to teach academic content, and this is, this is undermining that or distraction from that. From my point of view, missing, you know, students missing a little bit of face time, you know, a couple times a year, or even if it's three or four times a year, doesn't strike a death blow to to the learning process. FaceTime in and of itself may not be as helpful if there's not a, you know, a sense of trust or a sense of caring that the student feels with that teacher, with that figure of authority. And I think 
uh, frankly, if, if, you know, if students are feeling like there's an issue that really affects them and they care about it, it affects their daily lives, and a teacher is kind of not showing any empathy with that or, or at least a willingness to listen and hear what that issue is and maybe show solidarity with their students, then all the FaceTime in the world isn't going to be helpful for that learning uh, relationship because because often I think more and more we understand the importance of those relationships to, to really foster an environment where young people want to learn. There's a legitimate concern that I think some principals might have just around liability and safety, and I won't get into all those details, but I get that it's a complicated thing, and I understand why, you know, I, I do think it's a complex position that kind of superintendents and principals are put in. I think, um, I think it's important that school leaders, teachers, faculty, you know, try to understand where students are coming from. They're not required to agree with them, in my view, but they, I think if they show an effort to listen and take them seriously as people who are interpreting their world and have mature ideas about the world, um, then um, I think that goes a long way. It's, it's good to know that there's some promising um, evidence leading in, in, in a very strong theory of um, learning uh, representing this work. How would you say that this is most relevant to adolescent learners as opposed to the entire K-12 and even um, higher ed uh, mm-hmm. learning space? Um, um, I often find myself in rooms where I'm kind of challenging the notion that there's something unique about youth. So, mm-hmm. so on one hand, I think sometimes we as educators, we as scholars, I think we overstate um, what's unique about adolescence as a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes we overstate it in ways that kind of justifies the way we have set up schools as places where teenagers are set apart from younger children and or set apart from adults. And that becomes a vicious circle or cycle that reproduces itself. Part of me thinks it's really important that we challenge um, conversations or discourses that kind of act as though adolescence is this naturally really unique and strange and terrible time period. on the other hand, <laughs> there are things going on in these years, uh, whether produced kind of through our institutions or produced by biology that are important to account for. And I think uh, can allow me to answer your question mm-hmm. a little bit about what's kind of special about adolescence with regard to these issues of activism. And I, I think I'll point to two ideas there. Um, the first is that developmentally, I do think it's fair to say that as, you know, as, as young people are transitioning from childhood years, there is a, that is a time when our brains are developing in such a way as that we're more capable of, you know, complex abstractions and, and, and asking questions, moral questions about our lives, questions about fairness and justice, uh, seeing contradictions that we might be experiencing. Hey, they're telling me that America is a land for everybody and the land of opportunity, but, and I grew up here, but I'm not allowed to go to college. You know, this is the contradiction and I need to think about this more. Um, so that kind of interpretive process, I think, is accelerated in the teenage years, and particularly for youth who might be experiencing those contradictions. Hey, I go to a place where they say I, I'm loved, but I think I'm gay, and they tell me that if I say I'm gay, you know, I'm going to be cast out of this community. So th- these experiences of contradiction intersecting with identity and trying to figure out who you belong to and where you fit in is really accentuated. Uh, during these years. So that's one reason why these opportunities are really important. We need to create spaces in our schools that kids can talk about these things. There is a second way that I, because I do want to, I think there's quite a lot of synergy to the brain science. There's quite a bit of synergy or or overlap or consistency between what we're learning about the brain in terms of its plasticity Mm -hmm. and its adaptability and the ways in which 
in the teen years in particular, it's, it's, it's development is very experience dependent. Um, uh, and those kind of ideas and, and the kinds of arguments I want to make and my colleagues want to make for youth to have these rich civic experiences. Earlier in my career, I was talking about some of my research on youth activism, and there was a colleague who had read some of the research on the brain. He said, I guess you haven't read the brain research because it's telling me that you know, the, the brain is actually not fully mature until the mid-20s. How can you say that youth should have opportunities to give input about decisions and participate if, if their brains aren't mature? And um, I think that's a misreading of the literature. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's, it could, you could easily flip it as well because my interpretation of the literature is that um, because of the plasticity of the brain and the ways it's experience dependent, we really need young people to have opportunities to practice these kinds of skills, whether it's long-term thinking, strategic thinking, mm-hmm. uh, collaborating with their peers, dealing with open-ended questions and problems um, versus being given scripted answers, taking risks, um, taking risks in the public square, seeing risk-taking as an as a asset versus as a problem. Mm-hmm. So for all those reasons, again, I, I think there's a lot of consistency there. One of the things Jay Geed said, well, the brain is this amazingly adaptive um, organ, and when we talk about the teen brain, it will be whatever we want it to be as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I, I, I think that, we, that, that tells me, you know, if we want young people to be, have a voice, be agentic, be integrated into their communities, feel a sense of community, they'll adapt to that and they'll learn how to do that. And, but the only way that'll happen is if we provide those experiences or at least don't get in the way when they seek out those experiences. But how would you say that research uh, changes or what it says about different student groups, particularly historically underserved student groups, such as students of color or students Mm -hmm. from low-income families, what student activism means for them and and what your research has said. So I look to work by scholars. um, Sean Jinwright has done really good work in this area. Jeff Duncan Andrade has done uh, terrific work in this area. Scholars like Maria Torre in New York City. Um, The work that I'm persuaded by says, um, you know, if you're growing up in a system or social context that, that, that sends messages to you that you're not valuable, that you're disposable. Um, it sends those messages in different ways. It tolerates police murder of black boys. It tolerates a school that might be really decrepit and have deteriorating facilities next to beautiful fields and schools in kind of neighboring suburban communities. Um, it tolerates, um, you know, closing down neighborhood schools that you, your parents went to and that you always thought was a place that you wanted to go and, and then telling you to go to other places that might be less welcoming. My response to the kind of issue of culture or identity or lived experience is that um, if we want to kind of develop schools as places of belonging and, and, and healing and trust, then those kinds of experiences that youth might have um, coming around different kinds of identities and different kinds of lived experiences need to be not taboo. They need to be part of that connection that a teacher or a youth worker is forming with that student and not kept apart from it. Um, I think that the opportunity for conversations with each other, for building community where you can kind of witness to each other's experiences and, um, kind of make sense of the world together. It doesn't mean you all have to agree. It does not mean being indoctrinated into one worldview, but a place to really talk through these things that are affecting you directly. Um, I, I think that's a really important first step, and that might turn into different kinds of activism. It might turn into different kinds of voice. 
And, you know, but it, it might take other kinds of shape as well. Um, so I think that's, I guess that's an important message I want to underscore is that activism ought to be accompanied by opportunities for reflection, mm-hmm. critical self-reflection, critical reflection about the world. And, and without that, it's who knows what it is, but it's not necessarily developmental or educational. The United States is still struggling um, with the recruitment and retention of um, teachers coming from, you know, teachers of color, teachers mm-hmm. coming from um, low-income communities, um, basically the teachers that might share the experiences of the students that we're talking about. Um, knowing this, how can a wide range of teachers, whether they're teachers that share um, <clears throat> share these experiences or teachers that, you know, they've, they've never experienced it until it might be brought up in the classroom. How do we support the teachers and leaders in those spaces in building those trusting relationships? I think there's good work happening in this area around teacher education um, and what that looks like. There's scholars trying to build uh, pathways to teaching mm-hmm. so that more teachers coming into the profession um, under, you know, through life experience, kind of understand the kinds of life experiences of their students. I would like for listeners to gain the impression that one can do this kind of education, this kind of critical, reflective, and, and kind of agency-centered education in all kinds of contexts. It could take place at a more affluent, you know, suburban school. It could take place in a rural community. Um, you know, white young people growing up in, in the rural U.S. who might be traveling to get to a regional high school. Uh, there's challenges they're facing in their everyday lives, and I could imagine inquiry in a class whether it's a math class or a literacy class, et cetera, could be a space to explore these ideas and kind of develop their ability to inquire about issues, understand their, you know, how to reason with evidence, and also speak up about their experiences. So although this conversation, largely, I think, because it's where some of the greatest challenges exist mm-hmm. and the greatest kind of injustices exist, this conversation is focused very much on kind of youth of color, and that's a lot of my own research. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I want to underscore that I think some of these opportunities for agency and voice and critical inquiry are ones that that I would advocate in any kind of school context or, or district. To your point, it benefits all students when it happens. It's it's not just a benefit to the historically underserved populations, but having these broader conversation, um, it, it it supports positive development and positive inquiry, positive um, thought and and deep discussion in all students, and, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up. So as a superintendent, as a teacher, a principal, how should you be thinking about creating spaces that lead to young people's activism, leads to empowering them, while at the same time not leading it yourself? Because ultimately that might be a little bit of a, a paradox. First of all, I, I think that oftentimes we, oh, again, we, we, can, we can overstate the kind of significance of, say, the difference between the social category of student and the social category of teacher. And some of the best, in my view, some of the best kind of student voice work that happens in schools is more collaborative, using metaphors of partnership, mm-hmm. more intergenerational. So how can maybe there be a team of, of teachers and students who are working together um, to address an issue that the school is facing? Mm-hmm. And is there a way that the teachers can have some training to really listen and take the students you know, seriously as mm-hmm. colleagues? Um, uh, not in a way that's um, condescending, but actually taking them seriously while also acknowledging they're learning some of these skills. You know, 
that those are the kinds of learning environments that are so valuable. You know, I think the the role of a superintendent or a, a school district leader is to take those young people seriously and ask some questions and uh, not be hostile, but also not be condescending. Those are the two responses that I often see. Um, I, I, but I, I do think there is a really um, important role often for a more experienced person. It could be a slightly older youth, could be same age, but with more experience, or it could be a teacher to kind of lend some guidance. How do you structure an open-ended uh, challenge like this? How do you turn it into actionable steps? How do you frame your message for different kinds of audiences? So I do think there's some skills that uh, are important to learn and oftentimes more experienced people can help young people learn that. And that's, to me, that doesn't undermine in any way the authenticity of the activism if there's, if there's some guidance involved. You mentioned to us that you're launching a new project with some of your colleagues around this work. So one we're calling Transformative Student Voice, and I'm working with several colleagues um, around the country to develop a, a national learning community around how to work with uh, school districts, superintendents, schools, to support what, you know, what we're describing as transformative student voice. So that shift from um, old school student council as, you know, as planning prom to a new uh, approach to student council as student government mm-hmm. that's centered on issues of equity and, ex- and really making sure the experiences of marginalized students in a school defined, can be defined in many ways, have, are part of that process. So that's one that we're calling transformative student voice. Um, you know, we're also developing here at CU Engage a project called the Research Hub for Youth Organizing and Education Policy. And that, unlike the transformative student voice, which is very focused with form, on partnerships with formal school systems, um, this second one is more focused on partnerships with community-based organizing groups and really thinking about how research and curriculum can support their work and the learning of their participants, but also the effectiveness of their campaigns. Thank you so much for all of the work that you do and for taking the time to come and talk to us about youth activism, student agency, and relationships and trust and the importance of those for the entire system, both in and out of school. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. I I love this opportunity to get out there and, and talk about these ideas. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all4ed.org slash S-A-L.